not always a beautiful story, but I think there are ways we can inhabit that story that are honest and that hold something out that's maybe better than the way we've tried to do that in the past. What Australians, as in people in this place, have thought about this very complex and fascinating text. That's the deep impulse behind the book. Hello, and thanks for joining another episode of The Upside Down People. This is a podcast where we explore the intersection of theology, culture, and Christian practice. It's a podcast where we seek to encourage one another to see the gospel in life. In this episode, we sit down with Dr. Meredith Lake. Meredith is a historian, a broadcaster who hosts her own podcast called The Soul Search on ABC National Radio. She's also an award-winning writer whose book, The Bible in Australia, The Cultural History, has won multiple awards. Meredith has a keen insight in how the Bible has played a formative role in Australia's history. Let's jump into today's conversation. Welcome to our show, Meredith. So glad to have you uh, with us here uh, today. Before we get started, uh, I thought it'd be great for our listeners um, who may not have heard of you or may not know exactly um, what you do. We're going to dive into your book that you wrote very shortly, um, but maybe you can give us an intro of who you are, um, what you currently do, what your involvement is, um, yeah, and just who, who you are as a person. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Caleb. And um, well, I guess to start with, I'm on Gadigal land today, um, the land traditionally um, cared for and belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, which uh, maybe for people on Wajaknoya country who might not know, that means it's a, an area of Sydney or what we now call Sydney. And um, it's my hometown. I've grown up uh, here on the east coast of Australia. And I guess... In terms of my my normal week, um, I spend three days working in public media, um, researching and presenting a podcast on contemporary spirituality and religion, which, look, honestly, I think it's the most fascinating general field for curiosity going around. Um, um, And so I have a great opportunity in my work to kind of speak to all kinds of people about the practices and beliefs and communities that form them and orient them to the world. And I, I love that job. I've been there about five years. Um, this, the program's called Soul Search. And the other days a week, I, until recently, was um, caring for young children, but my youngest just went to school. So I'm still kind of finding my way into what a new phase of life, actually, about how to be... Um, a member of a family where the kids are just a little bit older, where that places new um, responsibilities on me, but it frees me from others and just kind of trying to not overload my time with too much stuff. I'm the kind of person who can be easily drawn into identifying with what I do. Right. And I think with COVID and since then, I've been really trying to resist that by um, doing less, Okay. Uh, but trying to be more. Yeah. <laughs> um, that kind of, I guess that's kind of where I'm up to. And, and for me, that's a conversation that I have in Christian community, among my friends, in my actual physical neighborhood, um, the footy club over the fence, which is a little, <laughs> uh, yeah, something I really love. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the picture of me at this yeah. point today in this place. Awesome. I, I think a lot of us can relate to um, just what you, you said at the end there um, with doing being more but doing less, what what does that look like for, for you or what have you learned in pursuing that? I think I came pretty close to burnout um, in my late 30s and that was, you know, combined with the pandemic and lockdown was um, pretty brutal um, in terms of what that meant for my family life and my work life apart from living through a deadly pandemic. Yeah. Um, and so probably about three years ago I was kind of, absolutely at the end of my tether and I I just started the only way through that at that time that I could really see was to just say no to every everything so even this conversation Caleb is a big step for me I have basically done no additional 
talks, podcasts, anything for years. Wow. Um, even though like when you're a writer and you're a storyteller and you really care about not only what we talk about, but how we talk about it. Like that's my whole thing, my whole training, um, whether I'm writing or speaking, whatever, like it's my whole thing um, to actually pull right back from that and go, um, I'm just going to not, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to keep silent a little bit publicly for a while apart from my actual paid job and, and, and pair it right back, which has meant saying no to all kinds of things I really wanted to do conversations I really wanted to be part of, relationships I really wanted to build, um, collaborations to, to join, all that. Um, and I'm, that actually was one of the best decisions I ever made wow. um, to kind of pull back from identifying with what I put out, <laughs> yeah. but also to just have more time. Like after we stopped talking, I might actually just go for a walk outside yeah. <laughs> um, and and not do or be anything more than someone a creature in a in a beautiful creation yeah um until school pick up of course when <laughs> all hell will break loose sure. but that's fine so I, I mean it's a very simple but for me it's been really grounding um and those bigger questions of will I ever write again <laughs> um I I I'm, I'm still waiting to see I just want a fallow period I guess uh, yeah um spiritually personally to regroup after what I think for a lot of people have been a very difficult few years yeah yeah. I mean, and I haven't had the worst of it at all. Obviously not. I'm insulated from the worst of it by all kinds of privilege and support. But I think a lot of us um feel pretty, pretty wrung out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um well I think I think it's such a privilege having you um on the show with us today and just being able to get a uh conversation in and um yeah, I, I'm so impressed by by yourself in terms of um, just with what you're saying, how you've managed to write this book, The Bible in Australia, um, whilst being a part of a family and all your other commitments, just like you're, you're saying, um, I can't imagine how, how much mental capacity that would take. And um, yeah, the, the book is just gold, like even people can go read the the reviews and there's just um yeah review after review that just says it's like nothing like it's been done before and it's much needed and it's so in depth and um it it covers so much ground and with what you're saying it, it sounds like you've got this large large capacity but um at the same time it it seems like there's also that that need to just draw back and um, find rest and find find a, a place of of solitude to to regroup. But I I don't know how how you've done it and with kids yeah. and family and yeah. <laughs> I I don't think I do do it, Caleb. I think for me this is a really open question that I mainly get wrong. <laughs> frankly, ask anyone who, who spends any time with me. Um, how often I just uh, get worn down and lose my temper over the slightest thing. I, I actually think um, rest is one of the things we rarely take seriously. I have always struggled to rest well and to even know what that could mean. Um, and I think writing, it's a really interesting craft in that it's so solitary. Like there's, there is no one else when it's you in the page. Yeah. And yet it, always occurs in community um, because none of us are, you know, atomized individuals. Um, it always is bound up with your own story and the relationships that are um, playing out around you. Um, and you have your your ideal reader. And so, I mean, those, those things are really kind of you to say that, Caleb, but I, I really do believe that it's possible to speak generously and carefully and beautifully about um, faith in this place. And, and I don't say that easily because I think, I mean, as I said, I'm on Gadigal country and not just on Gadigal country. I live literally in the spot that um, the British government, when they arrived as colonists, took from the Gadigal and gave without compensation or consent to the church. Wow. This is the land right where I am today that was granted to Richard Johnson, the first chaplain who arrived with the fleet, the English fleet in 1788. And he called it Canterbury Vale after Canterbury, the seat of the Church of England in England. Mm -hmm. And so even the name of my suburb now reflects 
the erasure of Indigenous ways of knowing and being and um, and the imposition on top of that, um, a whole different way of relating religion and place. Yeah. Um, and I'm the heir of that in so many ways in that I live here. It's a bodily, physical thing. I attend a church that's part of that same institution and lots of my own work as a historian prior to working in media. And, and I mean, writing the book was a way of me working this out was what does it now mean for me as uh, someone born of the colonizers with that inheritance culturally and all the rest to live here now um, in neighborliness with people who've been dispossessed and have the structural um, disadvantages of all of that. Um, so working out how to be a Christian in this place and what's the story I'm part of and how can that story um, play out. Like I'm not saying it's not a, it's not always a beautiful story, no. but I think there are ways we can inhabit that story that are honest and that hold something out that's maybe better than the way we've tried to do that in the past. I mean, I yeah. guess that's the deep impulse um, behind the book. Yeah. Which, which is about, I should say, like it's it's not it's about the Bible in Australia in the sense that it's about what Australians, pe- as in people in this place, have thought about this very complex and fascinating text. Yeah. And that might be a convict who has a biblical tattoo. It might be Nick Cave writing angsty uh, neo goth, uh, you know, about about the Old Testament or something. Or it might be something much more personal in my own case of figuring out what does it mean to be. A Christian in the wake of empire, yeah. um, <laughs> sitting in Canterbury, <laughs> Gadigal, uh, New South Wales. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. There, there is, and and it's not a straightforward or or simple um, analysis of it either. It's something that really needs to be dug into. And I love how you use that word honesty because if we look back at history and we try and remove the things that we are ashamed of or things that um, don't paint a pleasant light on whatever it may be, if it's the religion that we hold close to, for example, Christianity, um, and we try and paint over things that have been done in the the Christian faith or in the name, um, that's dishonest. And I think that's where we we lose sight of progressing as a, as a culture forward. Um, so yeah, I love I love what you're saying. So, what you you mentioned a bit of it about it, but I'd love to hear more. What inspired you to explore the cultural history of the Bible in Australia? Are there um, you you mentioned that you're on the land and um, there's that link there? So, are there any particular events or other factors that sparked your interest in this topic? I mean, sure. I, I think anybody. Uh, directly or indirectly, who's talking about religion often has skin in the game, <laughs> either because it's close to home or because they've run a million miles. Yeah. Um, I think it's the kind of thing that in one way or another, you know, it's bound up with our stories, whether we like it or not. And for me, I guess I, I had to think about this once kind of the book went out into the world and everyone else started responding to it. Like, why am I talking about this? And um for me, the answer probably does go back to my own upbringing, uh, which was in a outer suburban family near a national park. I would go to Sunday school every week with my set, like as what family went to church. Um, at that time, it was quite normal to have religious education as part of my public schooling. Um, and at the same time, um, parents who, for they were both converts who, I think found something really um, tender and life-giving in um, the story of Jesus. Uh, it totally changed their lives. Um, and so it, it was uh, always a kind of beautiful thing in, in my family growing up. At the same time, I was a teenager at the time when a lot of Christians in this city were arguing very bitterly over the role of women Um in the church and whether they could be preachers and ministers and all those kinds of things. And that, that debate was happening kind of up the chain, if you like, but it was also happening literally in the pews of the church that I was attending at the time. And so I could see that the ways people interpret the Bible and, and then wield those interpretations could have 
huge power for good and for ill uh, in ways that give life and that repress it. Um, and, and that kind of was something I learned in my early teens, just seeing that play out in very personal ways, affecting my own family um, and all kinds of things. And that, I think that gave me an insight into just what could be at stake um, as we come to a text like the Bible that we, when many people ascribe huge amounts of authority to. Um, and then the third element, I guess, was living near a national park. My dad was a geography teacher. So we spent a lot of time in the bush and he would always be talking about, you know, rock carvings and midden sites and those kinds of things. Um, he even thought that there were stone grooving, um, stone groovings in the, the backyard of the house that I grew up in. Um, it's a it's a part of Sydney that's among the most um, thickly inscribed, invisible ways to a white fella of yeah. that ancient um, Indigenous culture. Um, and I had no curiosity about it at all at that time growing up. But once I got to uni, started studying history, which was always what I've enjoyed, it, I guess in my early 20s, trying to join the dots between um, my upbringing as a Christian, but also this context, this world that I found myself in, and that's when I first started reading about the story of Christians in this place, going back to reading the letters of the first chaplain and all those kinds of things and recognizing some things and going, oh, I think we have things in common. And, and at the same time going, how could they have thought that or behaved that way? Or what I see is not what they see. And I wonder what the people down the track will see in my life and my context that I can't see. And, and that just kind of really kind of putting me in my place a bit and, and opening up all those questions. And so in a way, on and off, even since I was an undergrad, I've spent the last 20 years just kind of just trying to learn more, listen better and and, and sit with some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and I can, it's a very, very obvious that it's an area that you're very passionate about. Um, has there been any moments, particularly when writing, writing the book and in, I can imagine the amount of research that's gone into that, um, that you've come across a particular event um, or moment that you found particularly challenging? Um, and if so, do you mind unpacking that? Oh, I mean, in some ways, like all the time. <laughs> I mean, even just on a personal level, right, we are all so conscious of our complicities with all kinds of habits, structures, ways of being that, might be good for us, but certainly aren't good for everybody. That aren't that aren't genuinely neighbourly towards that wider kind of community of life. Um, but I think, I mean, for me, it was an ultimately encouraging thing. I mean, at the time I started writing, there was a bit of a culture war going on about should we tell the story of this place in terms of the influence of Judeo Christianity, right. the Western tradition. This is our civilization, and we need to not kind of stray from it. That was kind of one of the ideas that was circulating at the time. Right. And on the other hand, an idea that like to really understand Australia, we need to be thinking about land, we need to be thinking about Indigenous history and culture. And like in that framework, um, Christianity is just like this weird import from the old world that really doesn't have much traction here or much good to give. Yeah. And both those narratives just struck me as... Um, they're not messy enough. They're way too neat and they're way too easily turned into baseball bats to hit the other side with. And I'm not interested in that. Right. Um, no human life is quite that simple. And so kind of what I was trying to do is say, we need to take the colonial history and reality still of this place absolutely seriously. Mm. And to do that, we have to understand how Christians and their texts and those who've responded to those things have played out in this place and continue to play out in that place. These aren't binaries, the Western tradition versus Indigenous history. We live in a, a settler colonial society where those things are deeply enmeshed. Yeah. For So, for example, so I wanted to resist those kind of binaries and, and actually by putting the Bible at the centre of the story rather than, say, the church or even something we might call Christianity, yeah. what that opened up was a way of including the person who hated that book or was burnt by it, um, the person who left the church, um, um, the iconoclast, um, even someone like Henry Lawson, the poet, you know, the the famous Bush poet, who was like, uh, you know, he didn't think the Bible was divinely inspired or anything like that. 
but he thought it was a true record of the human condition. And so he appreciated it on that level. Yeah. So it meant, you know, it wasn't about could this person or that person in history be properly called a Christian, whatever that might mean. It was actually about how have people been in conversation um, with a very complex and often surprising text and how has that conversation been dynamic in shaping this place in our culture? Um, and that was a much, in a way, I don't know the answer to that, but it, yeah. it opened the whole thing out um, for me in a way that I hope got past those binaries of are we a Christian nation or aren't we? I'm like, that's the wrong question. We need to talk about what is the story that we've all inhabited together and what are we going to do about that now? Um, it's actually an open question what our future is and the texture of faith in this place. And it's about having a kind of honest, um, neighborly, um, approaching it with integrity, I guess, um, not with a sense of entitlement or even of like a, the kind of shame that would shut you down. Yeah. So I guess I was kind of trying to find another way. Um, yeah, that that was the attempt anyway. Yeah, uh, I I think you you spot on and and nailed nailed that attempt as as I was going through it. Um, I think that that stood out clear is that I I I actually didn't I wasn't thinking of it when I was reading, but as you've spoken now, it's like that makes sense. This this book, this text that has had this profound impact and influence on so many different people's lives um and just looking at it there and as you said said that that sort of breaks down those barriers where people um people can see it as what it is um so one one thought i did have was how um how do you think the bible in australia differed or the influence of the Bible in Australia differed from that of another country, say like America, where do you see that there's any unique or distinctive aspects um, in the Bible in Australia that you discovered during your research? Oh, that That's a really, that's almost a million dollar question in some ways, Caleb, and I continue to be really fascinated by that. So I couldn't pretend to have like a neat Ah, uh, here's here's the answer. <laughs> but I mean, I, I guess, and like, sorry to keep talking about the colonial era. That was that was kind of oh, what I did I, most of my research on. What yeah. I really think there's a lot more to engage with there that we normally give time to. But I do think, I, I mean, I talk about it in terms of the Bible, not as one thing, but something that comes in different guises, wrapped up with different cultural baggage, um, and interpreted in lots of different ways. Um, and one of the main forms, if you like, of the Bible that gets introduced to Australia is what I call kind of the globalizing the Bible, this idea that the Bible is a text for all people in all times and all places. Um, and that it's a particular idea of the Bible. It's not the only idea, but mm. that particular idea had heaps of energy around it at the time that Europeans colonized Australia. This is the era of the great missionary organizations, the British and Foral Bible Society is getting going. Um, there's a real sense. I mean, British evangelicals honestly thought that within a few decades, they'd be able to put a Bible into the hands of every single person on the planet. Yeah. Like they had these huge goals. And that's the kind of context in which um, the early clergy and missionaries to Australia kind of operated. But it came in a form, like came in the English language, the King James Version, allied to the kind of the power of the colonial state that was managing the lives of convicts that was displacing indigenous people from the land like it couldn't be abstracted really from that the structures of colonial settlement and so the way people have engaged with the bible in australia have been filtered in some ways through that history and through those cultural forms and i guess that that is really interesting to me because at the same time the bible then kind of crosses cultural boundaries because it's it's not a european book it doesn't have to be in English. Um, that in itself is just one iteration, if you like, of what the Bible might be in a culture. Um, and so seeing how it could be read against the empire, how it could be read against sexism, um, read in ways that um, sought something much more congenial to a community, um, those are the things that really stood out to me and really interested me. Um, I think I, that no, nobody could ever capture oh, and the Bible and put it in their pocket to serve their own ends. It's it's not that kind of text. Um, and I think 
one of the things that I found so exciting about the story was um, all kinds of people kept finding things in it um, and, and, and running in all kinds of directions and that the debate about what is this text and what does it mean for how we live together is in itself, that debate has been generative of a lot of Australian society and culture from the way we deal with the poor to the way um, we navigate, um, yeah, issues of race or gender or class, all those things. Uh, so I was trying to tie tie that kind of unpredictability to those wider stories of what, you know, what's happened here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned in, in the book where you explore how it's influenced um, the development of law, ethics, moral frameworks, literature, art, um, and a whole bunch of other cultural expressions. Do you mind unpacking that a bit? Yeah. I mean, it's it's tricky, like the Bible's influence. I mean, it's people who read the Bible yeah. and then draw from it, and they do that in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. Um, and that said, one of the ways, one of the main ways people have read and drawn on the Bible is with the view that the Bible itself has a life of its own, that it's a living word of God and has an agency of its own. Um, I mean, that kind of idea, for example, is really important to the, the, the Bible society that supplied so many of the Bibles in early Australia. Um, but there are lots of ways of reading the Bible and understanding its action Um understanding how it might be interpreted and applied in a society. And so I guess I was trying to keep in view the diversity that comes with that. Um, so, I mean, one example, um, just I mentioned Henry Lawson before, the, yeah. the Bush poet. His mother, Louisa Lawson, was one of the suffragettes, um, led a real leader in the campaign in New South Wales for votes for women. I mean, remembering, of course, that Australia – Certain colonies of Australia, by New Zealand, were the first places in the world where women and white women were given were, were given the vote and successful in achieving the vote. South Australia being the second place in the world. Um, that movement, um, especially in South Australia, was stacked with basically Sunday school teachers and Bible class ladies, yeah. temperance activists who thought to, to have a more moral home um, we need to control the alcohol trade, and to control the alcohol trade, we need the vote um, as women, as householders, as mothers and wives and homemakers. And so they mobilised this incredible campaign, um, and they they did that with biblical language, quoting biblical verses, drawing on church networks, and all those things. But here in New South Wales, and particularly in Victoria, a lot of that movement was much more um, secular or distant from actual church communities, and yet. Someone like Louisa Lawson, who was a post-Methodist Republican and didn't really want much to do with the church, she would cite verses like that one in Galatians about how there's no slave nor free or male nor female, or you know, all are one in Christ Jesus. Like even people like that in the culture of that time could draw on the language of certain parts of the Bible to make an argument for a more egalitarian society. And that's the kind of thing that fascinated me. It's like this this isn't a church use of the Bible. It's not even a necessarily Christian use of the Bible, but that movement that was expressed often in those terms with reference to the Bible was literally transformative for Australian society. Yeah, wow. Like it wasn't a perfect reform movement. Plenty of people were excluded from, from that. Like, um, uh, I mean, this almost goes without saying, but well, I'm just, I, I was fascinated by the way the Bible wasn't any one group's property. Yeah. Um, but something that kind of almost fizzled through um, a community as it tried to answer those big questions of, okay, well, how are we gonna, how are we gonna be a society together? Yeah, very good. And so, coming into where we currently find ourselves um, in this cultural moment, have you noticed there's been a shift or a, um, yeah, just a a shift, I suppose, in how people approach or see the Bible? Oh, huge changes. Um, I mean, e every generation thinks they live in a time of unprecedented change. And look, frankly, it's probably true. Um, but even just, I was saying before, I grew up going to Sunday school, scripture at school. Um, lots of the kids at my high school who weren't from Christian families went to the local church for youth group on a Friday night. Um, even without 
like I was highly socialized. Uh, this is the kind of terminology I'd use into a basic familiarity with the Bible. And so were lots of my peers at that time in the 80s. That kind of socialization and to, to kind of know, oh, basically this is what Easter and Christmas are and these are this is basic outline of the Gospels and what Jesus had to say, I think that has mainly shrunk. People just encounter the Bible as a religious text much less often than they did um, a generation ago. At the same time, though, it's shifted in the sense that um, there are way more Christian schools now that capture something like 40% of Australian high schoolers. All right. So that people mightn't be going to church or sending their kids to church, but where someone might encounter the Bible, that there are still lots of places. They're mainly high schools, right. um, and that's a, its own really fraught can of worms. Um, but where and how do people encounter the Bible? I mean, the digital revolution is another, like the whole way we read yeah. has totally changed. And so what's the difference between reading a book and scrolling. Yeah. Um, what does that mean for the kind of literacy that we have? Um, whether we encounter the Bible in short, you know, 140 characters or, you know, in as a big, massive book on the shelf. I think all those things are in huge flux. And so for me, the question is like, oh, there's been a decline um, and that's something to be anxious about, which, you know, some of the culture warriors are very anxious about yeah. that. For me, it's much more about, well, our whole culture is shifting. Our whole relationship to texts, to authority, all those things are in huge flux. And in some ways, the fact that 8% of Australians can still be found in church on a given Sunday um, means it's actually, it's nowhere near where it was, but it's still one of the more resilient, comprehensive kind of um, community um, structures in our society. Yeah. Um, and... So for me, the questions are around, okay, well, how are churches, how are Bible readers going to adapt to that? Um, and and I think become a bit less entitled. Like we, we don't, Christians don't have a right to speak necessarily any more than the next person, even though habitually maybe that's something they've become used to. So <laughs> I, I think it's about finding a new register, um, a, a greater hospitality um, in the ways that we even broach these kind of conversations in public. Yeah, very um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think what will happen next, in a way, I, one recent thing I've been really surprised by in a good way is just how much um, religious rhetoric there is around the upcoming referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. I mean, yeah. Noel Pearson um, quoted, uh, you know, referred to Judas um, when the No campaign got going. Um, and that was actually on Monday, Thursday, right before Easter. But several um, First Nations commentators have been drawing on the language of the Bible to make their case. And I think that's a really interesting set of examples of the use of the Bible in the political sphere. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure everyone saw that coming. No. Um, but in a way, it makes a lot of sense given the long history of um, Indigenous political activism and, frankly, religious leadership across this country for almost 200 years. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like um, the Bible can be both very divisive, but also very unifying, depending on whose whose hands it falls into. Um, what what do you think its role is, if any, or its places in the political um, arena? Would you say there's there's a necessity for it, or because you you mentioned it's curious that that it was brought up. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the, maybe this is because I've studied and trained as a historian, but for me, the one of the big take-homes of this project, which, you know, changed my life, I learned so much researching this book, is that whether we are people who have a particular value for the Bible or not, um, a lot a lot of the structures that we live with now in contemporary Australia were set up in an era when most people did identify as Christians and did have a working familiarity with the basic ideas of the Bible. And that means, so on a question like, um, how do you care for the poor? Do you start a trades union, like William Spence thought, the Presbyterian? Do you start a charity, like many early Christians thought? 
do you set up insurance mutuals um, as the founders of what's now AMP, who were all themselves Christians, like or a, a savings bank? All these institutions that emerged in the 19th century were shaped by particular understandings of the Bible and by the people who read that text and tried to apply it in their society. And so there's not one answer to, okay, how do we address poverty? And we're living in a cost of living crisis at the moment. Um, But we have these structures, banks, insurance companies, trades unions, charities, that kind of are the heirs of these old debates about, okay, how do you live out your faith in this context? And so we still have to answer the question of how do we be good neighbours? How do we live together when some people are accumulating wealth at a sickening rate and most people are being um, left behind in really unethical ways? And the Bible, does the Bible have a place in that? Well, some people will still answer that from a Christian perspective, but we all come to that question with the baggage of how other Bible readers <laughs> answered that question. Yeah. And I think just understanding that, knowing we, we all join a conversation that's been going on for years, years and years and years, because we operate with institutions all around us all the time. And just being a bit more aware of that kind of history and its complications can help us, I think, join the conversation well, a bit more wisely, with a bit more smarts, you know. Um, and so that would be why I think like, a secular person who cares about our social fabric, for example, might not say, oh, well, the Bible has to have the last word, but they might say, well, understanding different biblical or as in Christian views informed by the Bible of how to deal with poverty might actually be relevant because we need to make decisions now about what are we going to keep doing? What are we going to do differently? And the Bible's been one of those conversation partners. So it's more about, um, yeah, joining the conversation well than you know, the Bible being some kind of um, arbiter. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's much too, um, that would be much too simple um, and um, I think it would exclude too many people to to, to assume or even se- seek for that now. Yeah, very good. Um, and so do you think there's any, or what do you think the relevance is for Christians to understand the the history of the Bible Christians living in Australia to understand its history here. Yeah. I mean, one of the big takeaways for me, again, going back to that idea of, oh, this is a Christian nation that's maybe adrift from its Christian roots, that narrative, uh, which I think is quite widespread and it's fueled in part by the narratives that come out of the US, I actually just don't think it works here. Australia was colonized and the Bible was introduced here at the high point of the Enlightenment there have always been really diverse views, not only about the Bible, but about Christianity and in its institutions in, with the church. So in a way, debate, discussion, disagreement is absolutely normal. It's typical, actually, of the Australian experience. And so I just think um, Australian Australian Christians could um, feel quite relaxed about plurality, about diversity, about um, contending for their faith or another, like in the midst of everybody else. Like that in a way is something that churches ideally have had um, decades and decades of practice at, um, being one, a, a generous and neighborly voice among many. Um, that that That's a great position to inhabit. Um, I mean, obviously churches have dropped the ball on that as have I and many individual Christians, but I think that's a genuine option for an Australian Christianity um, to embrace that kind of diversity, not as a threat, um, but as characteristic um, and to just kind of relax into being who we are in this place at this time with all the baggage that's come with that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, it's a great point. So how, how do you see us moving forward together as, as a country um, with a plur- plurality of views and opinions. And um, I think the, the um, I'm going to get my words mixed up. I want to say digitization, but the globalized um, place of the internet and where there's information coming in from every every direction and every culture and, it it seems like 
Australia is trying to find, uh, especially right now, trying to find out what what makes us Australia, what makes our culture our, our culture. How do we move forward as a country or how do you see us moving forward as a country um, without division? Well, I'm not sure I've got an answer to that one, Taylor. But I mean, I guess just kind of going back to where we started and trying to be more than do, um, it's my own little thing at the moment. I really do think there are limits to thinking on a national scale. And I think, I mean, the Bible has often been read as a national text. Um, it In the 19th century, it was sometimes called the secret of England's greatness. It was kind of, that was the peak of the imperial Bible. The reason the British Empire took over so much of the world was because, you know, it was properly and truly Christian. It was a very, wow. I mean, quite toxic and heretical narrative, yeah. but it got a lot of traction. You can find plenty of sermons along that theme preached in the colonies at the time. Wow. But the Bible is not easily or only a nationalist text. Um, it also, I think, speaks to local people and communities in their land, their place. Um, and it also obviously has, um, at, in some parts, envisions, sorry, <laughs> nothing less than the whole cosmos, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Um, and so I think, I'm not sure there's an easy correlation between religion and nation going on from here. Yeah. I think actually that's something to be wary of. Yeah. Um, I'm, and I'm obviously skeptical about kind of Christian nationalism um, in all its forms, um, including as it's been articulated here. And so I think there's something to be said for getting on with the love of God and love of neighbour and not overthinking that too much. Um, our actual neighbours, the people we live amongst and around, um, that we share our lives with off screen, um, the people in our literal neighbourhoods. I think there's a lot to do to just get on with being present and loving them um, and, share, and, and sharing life with them. Um, and I think, you know, I guess I hope maybe this is naive that the rest will partly take care of itself, um, but being genuinely neighbourly um, I mean, that, that feels like a big enough task yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I'm not that interested in the, the project of a, of a Christian nation or even of an Australian nation. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that's how, um, the world's going to be different on the same time. The other level I think about it on is of the level of a creature as part of a community of creation. Yeah. Um, we need to think way beyond the nation I mean, this is a time of absolute climate chaos. Um, the heat waves in Europe at the moment are literally killing people, yeah. um, breaking heat records all over the place. Um, I am scared to think actually what the next summer might look like in this part of the world. Um, and so I think our obligations just as creatures among creatures, um, there's a lot to get on with there as well on this very beautiful and fragile planet. Yeah, I think we can often overcomplicate things by trying to trying to solve problems that are far bigger than us when we can control what our na like our our love for our neighbor or um being being good stewards of the environment that we're we're in um and simplifying the process down to the the individual i think that's really important and that's almost what i'm i'm hearing you saying is um, We're down to the local. Down to the I local, guess. yeah. 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 I think it is it is a communal task. Yeah. Um, not an individual one, but it's personal. Um, right. I guess that's the distinction I'd make. Personal. Yeah, that that's a good distinction. And and we're we're all part of this ecosystem, so so it's um yeah, working together almost to uh to to take care and to take stewards of of, of each other and of of this place that we find ourselves. Um which is, yeah, super important, I suppose. What would your encouragement be to someone who is, say, wrestling with uh, texts like the Bible um, and trying to figure out where the, its authority stands in their life um, in looking at some of those big issues that you mentioned, climate change or poverty, um, 
and even just society as a, as a whole, like how to be a good neighbor, what, what would you say or what would your encouragement be to someone who's wrestling with, with a text like the Bible in those, those topics? I guess just on the first level, I think the Bible is, it's not an easy companion, <laughs> um, um, but I think it rewards attention. I really think it rewards attention, not because it's going to neat, be neat or ever entirely line up. Um, I think it's a really, I mean, it's a compilation of really diverse texts um, and and that there's something irreducible <laughs> about that. Um, but I guess for me, I think what the dominant kind of neoliberal capitalist kind of individualism of our time offers us is just so hollow and destructive. I just don't think we flourish as human beings, as people who work and accumulate and consume um, almost at any cost, which is the narrative that the onslaught of the advertising world, even of a lot of, not all, but a lot of digital culture presents us with in such an intense way. And for me, anyway, reading the Gospels, and I mean reading, like not just once, but I listen to an, like the, an audio version. I find that works best for me. That's how I read <laughs> often. Um, it's another way. And in my, in my view, what Jesus holds out in like the Sermon on the Mount is just much more beautiful, much more whole than anything kind of contemporary industrial capitalism is ever going to give me. And for me, it has huge potential as a source of resistance um, because it makes space for rest. Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Like Jesus says that, and that is literally my favorite verse in the whole Bible. And the hardest thing, come to me and I will give you rest. Like just just to one line, I, I don't understand the whole Bible. I never, ever will. But if I can get to grips, even the Gospels are not that that easy off the top. But that for me is is the heart of it. Um, and just those one-liners, those cracking one-liners from Jesus give me so much to think about that he's refreshing and challenging and that shake up the assumption that our, it's not Australian culture, it's capitalist culture. What that serves up to me that, um, yeah, that there's plenty there that's that, that I find good for me. Um, and, and I think the big challenge is actually attending to the text enough to ask the questions about how we could be different um, at a time of low biblical literacy, as I said, that's just not available to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but I think it rewards attention. Um, so hang in there is what I'd say. That's awesome. Um, our, I can see our, our time's coming to a close. So one final sort of thought that I'd love to hear from you. It's often been said that to predict the future, we need to look and learn from the past. Um, and that's something that your book uh, beautifully provides a, a tool to to look to the past. Um, with regards to the Bible and its place in Australia um, going forward or in the future, where... What's your thoughts or, or musings on that? I, one of the things that stands out is, yeah, look, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> um, um, Christians have often been wrong. Scientists have often been wrong. <laughs> um, we, we just don't really know very much. Um, and we think we do and we argue like we do and we, we identify so many political hills that we're somehow prepared to die on. And we just, <laughs> we're probably wrong <laughs> about lots of those kind of questions. And there's a freedom in just kind of accepting that, accepting that, I think, for me. Like when I look back on Christians in the past and think, yay. But the impulse that I think, the Gospels and the figure of Jesus certainly push us towards to consider others before ourselves, to seek, you know, to love mercy and to walk humbly, like as the book of Micah has it, that impulse, might we might live that out in flawed ways, guaranteed almost, but that impulse um, 
I think is a good one. That instinct, which which um, I understand Jesus' kingdom to be about, um, I think there still is something beautiful there that you can never force on anybody, but it's something we can live into and inhabit more fully in our communities. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out once again and having this conversation. You clearly are very passionate about about this and I think it's important it's an important conversation to have we you can't dig the depths of of it in 40 or so minutes um there's so many more questions that could be asked and um rabbit holes that could be uh jumped down and into um but I'd just encourage our listeners if they um out and about they can should go grab a copy of Meredith's book the bible in Australia um and if you listen, listen, enjoy listening to podcasts as well to, um, listen to, to her podcast, the soul search. Um, I, I think you'd, yeah, do yourself so much good in, in either doing one of those two things because she is a wealth of knowledge and you can learn so much from the conversations she has, um, and the storytelling that she does in a book as well. Um, so thank you so much, Meredith, for taking the time. I feel so privileged that you accepted this invitation um and yeah I, i've really enjoyed it and like like i said i feel like i've only scratched the surface of of what um what you have to offer so yeah hopefully we can have another conversation sometime as well and yeah i wish you all the best in uh your your future endeavors thank you oh thanks caleb and thank you for curating such a um generous space for conversation it's really beautiful i'm so glad that i was in a space to be able to be part of this and i just really appreciate all your warmth and all your wise words thanks thanks for